in his second epistle, Peter seeks to address the danger within the church. In the first epistle, he dealt with the suffering righteous, those who are confronted with the danger outside the church, that would be persecution. But now he wants us to realize that all the danger is not outside the body, but inside as well. In the first chapter of this second epistle, Peter deals with the issue of what does it mean to be a Christian. And toward the end of the chapter, he focuses on the matter of memory. As he wrote of reminding his readers, refreshing their memories, and remembering these things. And then at the very end, in what is really a transition to what will come in chapter 2, he moves. He makes a case for the truth and the authenticity of the gospel. And to do this, he presents two sets of witnesses, uh, the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets. That is, one set from the Old Covenant and one from the New. We find bookends, uh, so to speak. Uh, on one end, if you look at chapter 1, verse 16, uh, Peter answers a charge of following cleverly invented stories. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a term used uh, usually for quack doctors, so that Peter and the apostles are seen as religious quacks. And the implication is the gospel is not true. At the other end is what we will look at today in verse number 3. Uh, we read of false teachers who will exploit you with stories they have made up. So Peter says, we have not made up our stories. These are not cleverly invented stories, but the false teachers, in fact, do have stories they have made up. One of the things that Peter does in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 1 is to point to the continuing relevance of the Old Testament. And while the New Testament is superior to the Old Testament, the New Covenant to the Old Covenant, and the coming of Jesus into the world is the fulfilling of the Old Testament, we should not imagine that the Old Testament is unimportant, insignificant, or irrelevant. We saw this in First Peter, where Peter demonstrates the reality of the suffering righteous is seen in the Old Testament, is seen supremely in Jesus, and is seen in the church as it continues. So as we look at our passage today, it begins with a connection to the Old Testament. Look, if you would, at verse number one. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. What we find in the first verse, and again, the chapter divisions, the verse divisions are artificial. Peter has just written about the Old Testament prophets. He continues in that vein when he talks about the Old Testament saints, that there were false teachers among the people, and the people, by implication, the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Covenant. And so chapter 2 opens with this statement. There were false teachers or prophets among the people, there will be false teachers among those who are God's people today among you. False prophets in the Old Covenant, false teachers in the New Covenant. We should not imagine 
that if Israel was warned about such things, we don't need to worry about that because after all, that's Old Testament, Old Covenant. We're New Covenant. We don't really have that problem. Israel was warned, and we should listen to that warning as well. Um, Moses wrote, he spoke to the people of Israel about false prophets and what they should do. Let me read to you two passages. The first is Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, and serve and hold fast to him. The prophet or dreamer must be put to death, because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God, who has brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. So even in the Old Testament... As Israel is in the wilderness preparing to enter the promised land, Moses warns them, this in fact is a real danger, that people will come in and they will do signs and wonders. They will prophesy things that in fact will take place. But if they say, let's follow other gods, then you know that they are wrong. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says something that I think we're probably more familiar with. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. If someone claims to speak in God's name, but in fact is a false prophet, they must be put to death. Well, there are those who would say that this really just reinforces what they've thought about God all along in the Old Testament, that he's bloodthirsty and a cruel, uh, unloving deity. Um, I don't see it that way at all. I take it to signify that false prophets and false teachings are serious things. It's serious business. Let me just ask you, if there is someone that you go to who claims to be a doctor and they give you a prescription that they claim will cure you, but instead that medicine does damage or perhaps even causes death, how would we respond? Would we say this person needs to be put out of the profession? Would we say this person needs to be punished? Here we're talking about physical health. God is talking about the condition of your soul, your spiritual well-being. And a false teacher, a false prophet, I think is far more serious than a quack doctor who is prescribing something that is not good for you. So as we begin chapter 2, we need to be clear on this point that there will be false teachers that will find their way into the church. And they usually do it from within the church. Occasionally there are those outside the church, but oftentimes these are church members, perhaps even leaders in the church in good standing, and they have the potential to lead people astray. So Peter writes, there will be false teachers among you. Paul told the Ephesian elders the same thing, a very emotional scene in Acts chapter 20. It's the last time he's going to see them. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and then from there he'll be taken to Rome where he'll be executed. 
And he gives them this long speech. And he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. You see, the danger is not merely outside the church, the congregation. There is danger within as well. The story is told that during the Spanish Civil War, General Emilio Mola marched on a city. And he was asked, how many columns of men do you have? You're trying to take this walled city. How many men do you have? And he said, I have five four at my back and one column inside, a fifth column inside. And so this expression, fifth column, came to designate betrayal. Those who are in your midst as the enemy approaches, but in fact they are on the side of the enemy and they will help the enemy at the right moment. The church needs to be on its guard against a fifth column within our own ranks. Two things to keep in mind before we go further. Um, the first is that there will be false teachers that come in. The second is that, particularly in the early church, before scripture was completed, teachers had a very high position, an elevated position. They were seen, in a real way, as the preservers of the gospel. Um, And so if somebody came in and said, I am a teacher, that meant something. Well, we should not imagine that now that we have the whole Bible, that teachers are in a subordinate uh, position, that somehow their position is diminished. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, it was he, that is Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, until we are to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So teachers are important and they do have a high position in the church. The third thing that we should consider is that there is a struggle to know how do we discern if somebody is, in fact, a false teacher. Some wonder if they should be as critical as they are. But then they worry, maybe I'm too critical, maybe I'm, maybe I'm focusing on minor issues, I should maybe just let these issues go. What is important and what is unimportant? Others become discouraged that there are false teachers and that false teachers oftentimes have a prominent place. And so people will leave churches, will leave denominations. They may even leave the Christian faith looking for honesty and integrity. If nothing else from our passage today, we should learn from Peter that false teaching is an ever-present and inevitable danger in any church and any denomination. That makes you sort of want to take a deep sigh and wonder, is there ever a point where we can just relax? I mean, we're all, it seems that we're always to be on our guard. But no, truth is important and error is as well. These things matter. It's not as though, well, whatever you want to believe, that's your truth and eh, if they're off a little bit, that's okay. Um, Error is significant, as is truth. 
Peter writes what he does and what we find in chapter 2, that we would avoid being deluded or taking, taken in. And then he writes chapter 3 so that we don't lose heart, so that we don't become despondent. A very wisely written epistle by Peter. What we are to do is to take radical action to avoid error and its consequences. So in verses 1, the second part of verse 1, to the first part of verse number 3, Peter gives us warning signs. How are we to know if, in fact, there is a false teacher, that someone is a false teacher? Um, This is a question that the Israelites asked Moses. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. But you may remember what I just read earlier from Deuteronomy 13, that in fact there are those who may do signs and wonders. They may prophesy, predict things, and those things take place. It'd be a lot easier, well, it's easier, not a lot easier perhaps, if someone makes a prediction, a prophecy, and it doesn't take place. I say, I I take it back because what if they say in five years something will take place, and what, I have to wait five years to find out whether or not this person is a genuine article. On the other hand, they may in fact prophesy something, and it may take place. That doesn't make that person an authentic prophet. I get nervous whenever someone gives me a list, um, and yet I'm just about to do that with you. Five warning signs about false teachers. These are things that we are to look for. Now, if you see this, it doesn't automatically mean that somebody's a false teacher, okay? But these are five things that we should consider. The first warning sign is unorthodox teaching. That is, they are teaching something contrary to the Christian faith. And this may just seem obvious, but in reality, unorthodox teaching may be hard to spot. The people that Peter writes about will not have big signs around their neck saying, I'm a false prophet, please do not listen to me. They will, in fact, sign, they will sound highly plausible. As he puts it in verse number one, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will smuggle in their new ideas. Now, the word heresy, I think, is, is too familiar for its own good because for us, um, we think that's something that's easily recognized. But the word actually means an opinion or a variant. So originally, we could say during this period that the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and even the Christians are a heresy. They are an opinion or a variant on a view of the Old Testament of Scripture. And if you would say, oh, you belong to that heresy, that was not offensive. There was nothing negative about that. There was no underlying criticism. It's simply, you belong to that school of thought. However, as the New Testament begins to be written down, this word is taken and it is used in a negative way. The sense of faction or divisiveness. Peter adds another dimension, and that is destructive, that it is destructive. What these men are teaching is not a permissible variant of the gospel. It is false teaching that leads to condemnation. 
And the critical proof lies in verse number three, stories they have made up. And the stories, we're not told what they are. Is it about their own credentials, uh, their own ministry that they sort of exaggerate or just flat out lie? Or have they said, we have new insight into the truth that God has taught them? I remember hearing a pastor say many years ago that if in the course of reading scripture uh, he came across something and a, and a new thought sort of popped into his head that he was like, wow, I, I never saw that before. I never thought of that before. He said what he would do is write it down on a piece of paper and stick it in his drawer, in his desk drawer. And then for the next two years, he would see if anybody else had seen that in that particular verse. And if he didn't, at the end of two years, he would take the piece of paper out, tear it up, and throw it away. Because he did not believe that somehow God would give him insight or would cause him to see new truth that nobody else in the church had seen. But these people have made up stories. And rather than adding to the glory of God, they deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. The expression sovereign Lord uh, is a strong one. The Greek word is despotes, from which we get despot in English. We usually think of it as a cruel dictator. The English Standard Version has master. It is the usual word for one who owns slaves, and it stresses the absolute right to possess. If you are despotes, you have slaves, and you have the right to possess these individuals. Usually when we find this word in the New Testament, it speaks of God as the creator and the ruler of the world. But I don't think that's where Peter is going with this. This verse presents difficulties, at least it does for me, primarily because of the phrase denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. It would seem to be, at least to me, that Peter is saying these are people who were Christians, they are no longer Christians, and they are denying the Lord, the Lord Jesus who died for them. Um, they are denying, so they have lost their salvation. I don't think that's what Peter is saying, however. Before we go on, the word bought, the sovereign Lord who bought them, is a word that we find used time and time again in the New Testament, at least 25 times, when it speaks of the effects of the death of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Okay. So are these people Christians? Did Jesus die for them and they accepted Jesus into their heart and now they are denying him and so they have lost their salvation? One of the questions I've asked myself many times over my lifetime is, do false teachers know that they are false teachers? Um, in some sense, though, that I think is a secondary question and, and perhaps a frivolous question. What we should ask is, can one who is a child of God be a false teacher? Our passage would seem to hint that the answer is yes. But if we say that, that means that someone who has been given new life, who has participated in the divine nature, can in fact turn around and lose all that God has given that person. And so I would say no. A child of God cannot be a false teacher. So what does Peter mean in this, in this difficult verse? There are a number of possibilities. I will present two. 
The first, it's been suggested, and I agree, that what Peter's talking about is not the false teachers. He's talking about Israel. That's one of the problems we do, you know, when you have pronouns and what do they refer back to. When it speaks of the sovereign Lord who bought them, the them is not the teachers, it's the people. It's Israel. In Deuteronomy 32, is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you, who made you and formed you? In Deuteronomy, Moses points back to the work of God in rescuing his people by which they became his possession because he bought them. This, I think, is what Peter's speaking of. He's not speaking of the death of Jesus, his blood to wash away our sins and to make us his own people. He's talking about God buying Israel, redeeming them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and bringing them to the promised land. This would hint at the fact that the false teachers are probably Jewish. Um, and we saw that in Galatians that in the early church, it is these men from Jerusalem who follow the apostles around and try to undo or to mess up everything that they have done. Another possibility is that this includes a view, that it refers to the Exodus, but that the they refers back to the people, even denying the sovereign Lord who, brought the, who bought the Israelites when he delivered them out of Egypt. I think at some point we have to step back and think, wait a minute, wait, wait. Peter's talking about denying the Lord. Peter knows something about that, doesn't he? Three times he denied that he knew, knew the Lord Jesus. But he also knew the wonder of being restored. In Peter's case, we have a momentary act of cowardice. These men, as we will see in the weeks to come, are settled in their opposition. They show no inclination to remorse or repentance. They have denied the Lord. How did they do this? We are not told. But it would seem to be, because when we get to chapter 3, they deny that Jesus is coming back. They reject the Christian view of the future. For them, this is it. And then when you die, your spirit goes somewhere. But it is the Christian view that when we die, one day there will be resurrection. Jesus will return and we will be resurrected and we will spend eternity with him. This is something that the false teachers want nothing to do with. And this, I think, in fact, is what they are denying. There's a strong irony that Peter points to is that they introduce destructive heresies. This will bring swift destruction on themselves. Swift doesn't mean right away. It means sudden and unexpected. Doesn't mean that tomorrow they're going to die. And I've, I've had people say that to me. Oh, so-and-so is a false teacher, but they're not going to live long because God's going to kill them. God would not allow them to continue to live. No, that's not what Peter is saying. So that's the first sign. The others won't take as long, but the first sign is unorthodox teaching. The second is immorality. Peter puts this in directly that many will follow their shameful ways. What he's saying is that false teachers lead and encourage people to live immoral lives. Shameful is a word that will show up again in this chapter as he writes about false teachers in verse number seven. 
And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. It's the same word as shameful. And in verse number 18, for they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires, there's that shameful again, of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. What Peter points to are repeated or different forms of lasciviousness, sexual immorality. N.T. Wright, in his new translation of the New Testament, puts, and many will follow after their disgusting practices. One could make the case, and I think in the weeks to come you will see it, it is inevitable that if someone does not believe in the second coming, if they do not believe in the final judgment, then what have you got to lose? I mean, you're not going to stand before God and be judged for your action. Jesus is not coming back. So what is to prevent you from living a life of immorality? Ethics then becomes a very private and personal matter, a matter of taste and choice. Self-expression and fulfillment become the basis of all decisions rather than purity and obedience. And so this is another warning sign. The third warning sign is that they are popular. Many will follow their shameful ways. Uh, One author has noted, it is not strange to see that the most dangerous heretics have many followers, every error being a friend to some lust. If, in fact, there is no master to please, we only have to please ourselves, And if someone speaks a message that flatters people rather than calling them to repentance and faith, if one encourages people to enjoy their darkest and most secret desires rather than hard discipleship and learning, we should not be surprised that many will follow. But we must take care. We should not imagine, oh, this church or this pastor has a large congregation. Hmm. He must, there must be something wrong. He must be a false teacher. On the other hand, we shouldn't say, well, oh, this church is rather small. They must have the truth. I don't think that's what Peter is saying at all. Rather, I think he's trying to encourage Christians who are holding on to the faith for all that they can as they see people leaving the faith and going after these false teachers. And Peter's saying, listen, That is a sign of their falseness, that people will, in fact, follow them in their shameful ways. The fourth warning sign is the effect it has on evangelism. He says it will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Non-Christians aren't stupid, okay? I think that they can see through falseness to a certain degree. And they are repelled and disgusted oftentimes by the greedy self-indulgence that they see in false teachers. I'm reminded in the Woody Allen movie, uh, Hannah and Her Sisters, uh, Max von Sydow's character at one point says, if if Jesus could see what is done in his name, he would puke. It's like, yeah. Um, Just because someone is not a Christian doesn't mean that they can't see that what is being done is wrong. The word that Peter uses is blasphemio, from which we get blaspheme. It's a word he will use again in this chapter, bringing slanderous accusations. And in verse 12, 
he uses the word blaspheme. One is reminded of the Old Testament, what Isaiah writes, all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Dekai said once that, you know, the commandment, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He said that he imagined that that happens more in a church on Sunday than it does in any bar in town. You know, somehow we imagine that wicked people don't know what they're doing. I think they, I think they're much more clever than we are. And oftentimes we are the ones who need to be awakened to the reality of what is going on. Well, what is it that the false teachers do? that hurts the cause of Christ. Well, that's the key. It is what they do. In the New Testament, we see that behavior is important. When Paul writes Timothy about the qualifications of an elder, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In Titus, as Paul advises him, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. If we would be honest, many non-Christians will not take our beliefs seriously because our actions do not match what we say. And granted, we are sinners and we fall. But with the false teachers, Can you just imagine a false teacher comes into town and you follow that false teacher and you say, I have the gospel. And they're like, about the Jesus guy in in, in Palestine? Oh, one of you guys came into town and he was a complete jerk and he did all these terrible things, ripped people off. We want nothing to do with what you have to say. And perhaps you have met such people who want nothing to do with the Christian faith because of those that they have met who profess to be Christians. The fifth warning is suspect motives. Verse 3, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Does this surprise us? If they are teaching shameful ways, do we expect less than honorable motives? The only motive is not money, as we see in other epistles. But here Peter focuses on greed, and he uses the word exploit. Greed has overtones of, uh, of extortion. Exploit is a commercial term. It has to do with money. Paul wrote of this in 1 Timothy as well. Men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Listen carefully. The New Testament is not ashamed to say that Christian leaders face temptations over money. The New Testament is very clear about this, which is why, in part, leaders are to be chosen for their financial honesty. We saw this in 1 Peter 5, 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 8, and I think it's really quite astounding. The Corinthians have been collecting money, and it's going to be sent to the poor in Jerusalem. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. 
So they're going to give Paul the money. And Paul says, that's fine, but don't send me alone. Other people have to go with me. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. It is sad that in our day, and perhaps for some time now, money is what people most often associate with the church or the Christian faith. It's really sad. It should make us weep. There is the old Bob Hope joke about being on a plane that had lost its power and was going to crash, and somebody yelled, somebody do something religious. And Bob Hope said, so he took an offering. And of course we laugh, but in fact it is so tragically true that many people, when they think of the Christian faith, they think of money and dishonesty and a lack of financial integrity. Peter is concerned that his readers are able to know who is a false teacher, those who do not hold to orthodoxy, those who are marked by sexual immorality and take people with them, those who attract a lot of followers, those who bring disgrace on the gospel, and those who are marked by greed. But this is not the end of the story. And that's great, because if you look at the second half of verse number three, we find that God is not caught by surprise. God knows this is going to happen. It happened in the Old Covenant, the false prophets. It happens in the church. And God knows about that. Imagine, if you will, that you are in the first century. You live in what is now modern-day Turkey. You're a Christian. You have come to put your faith in Jesus of Nazareth. And one day, a man comes into your church as you meet on a Sunday, and he says, I am a teacher. I am from Jerusalem. I have many things to teach you. You think, well, this is great. Somebody from Jerusalem, this, this person may be even seen Jesus himself. We want to hear what he has to say. Then he begins to teach, and you're like, no, what he's teaching is wrong. He preaches that there is no final judgment and that there is no second coming, that Jesus is not going to return. And you're sitting there waiting for lightning to come from heaven to strike this person dead, and it doesn't happen. And in fact, you find that many of the people in your congregation decide that they like this guy. And perhaps the congregation even splits, that those on your side, if you wish, those who hold to the faith, decide to stay, but then others go with this person. And nothing happens to them. And you begin to wonder, am I wrong? Am I the fool? If this person is a false teacher, why are they still walking around? And why are they prospering? And why are they doing so well? Does God know, not know what is going on? Peter says, God knows precisely what is going on. I love the verse in Psalm 121. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Look, if you would, at verse number three, the second part of it. 
Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Specifically, Peter says God has decided on the verdict. They are to be condemned. He has decided on the sentence. They are to be destroyed. See, one only has to go back to the very beginning to understand what God thinks about sin and his verdict on sin. God told Adam, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And some might say, yes, but they did not die right then. We've talked about this before. Death is separation. And when Adam and Eve ate, a number of deaths took place, a number of separations. First of all, from each other, a social death. They, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. Then there was a spiritual death. When God came down, they were afraid and hid themselves. Their psychological death, Adam was afraid, a lack of in, you know, integration within his own self. And then there is an ecological death. Now the ground will resist him. And some would say, yes, but they didn't die. And God said, the day you eat of it, you will die. Eventually they did die. And I think this shows the mercy of God. It is the mercy of God. And as we continue in Second Peter, we will see this, that God is patient and God is merciful. One could wish that God would strike false teachers dead. It would make our lives a lot easier. But God is a God of mercy. And God requires of us a certain discernment. You see, if God struck down every false teacher, we would not be able to discern what is true and what is false. We would not gain that skill. God is testing us. We are, as a congregation, as the people of God together, to say, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. And when we see someone who is teaching what is wrong and they prosper and a lot of people follow them, we should not say God doesn't know about this. God absolutely knows about this. But God is also a God of mercy. The Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will see more as Peter deals with the issue of false teachers. But he begins here at the beginning of the chapter to say, listen, what happens among God's people here, it happened among God's people in the Old Testament. False prophets, false teachers. And these are the things you need to look out for. And do not despair. Do not imagine God doesn't know about this. He's known about this all along. Let's pray together. Father, it seems that we're called on to always be on our guard. And there's a certain part of us that would just like to be able to kick back and, and relax. Help us to see that as Christians, we are not alone. We stand with our brothers and sisters. We have the truth, that precious gift. And there are those who would take that from us, would replace it with error. in the same way that we would protect one another from physical danger, we should protect one another from spiritual danger. 
we trust that you know what is best. A part of us wants to say there should be no false teachers. It would be so much easier for us as your people. But you know what is best. May we trust you and by your grace learn to discern. And above all, to do it in a spirit of love. You cause the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Your sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. We pray for those not with us, for those that are traveling, for Amanda who will be going home tomorrow, that you give her safety. May we have a sense of your presence with us throughout this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.